You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On this episode, I speak with Alex Lazaro. He spent his career working at the intersection of investing, innovation, and economic development in the public, private, and social sectors. He's the author of Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. He's a venture capitalist with Cathay Innovation, a global firm that invests across Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. Previously, Alex worked with the Omidyar Network, and he served as a strategy consultant with McKinsey and a financial regulator with Bank of Canada and as an M&A investment banker with Royal Bank of Canada. On the show, we talk about his book a lot, as well as some other things, examples of global startups that are doing well and doing good. We talk about a term that he's coined called camels, not just calling companies unicorns or zebras, but they could be camels. Uh, we add another one to our vernacular here. Also, multi-mission athletes, and we'll get into that in the show. He talks about tips on how to become a VC, how to raise capital as a mission-oriented founder, and a lot more. So please stay tuned. Alex, welcome to Startups for Good. So glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't we start with a little background on how you got into investing? Um, happily, I'm a, in many ways a little bit of a accidental venture capitalist. I, uh, when I started my career, I thought I was going to think about questions at its intersection of innovation, finance, investing, uh, and emerging markets and economic development. But I thought I was going to do a PhD. And I ended up having the opportunity to work uh, on the Canadian version of Wall Street and Bay Street in Canada and fell in love with the tool of finance. And while I wasn't in love with selling big Canadian insurance companies, I realized there was a really strong potential for that to have impact. This was at the rise of microfinance and uh, the beginnings of impact investing. And, and that, that's what really got me focused on, on this question of investing. And so today I'm a venture capitalist. I work for a fund called Cathay Innovation. It's a globally focused fund investing a third in Europe out of Paris, our headquarters, a third across Asia and a third in North America. It's a bit that I work on. We also have a Pan-Africa venture fund in partnership with Africa Invest, and the whole group's affiliated with Cathay Capital. Um, and so that, that's my day job, investing in startups, both in North America and, and around the world. And, and outside of work, I've been teaching entrepreneurship at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, which is Middlebury College's graduate program. In both those worlds, I've been thinking about how do you build and scale startups around the world. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll be diving into your book as well. You also previously had been an investor with an organization, more of a explicit impact orientation, right? Yeah. I was with Omidyar Network for about five and a half years, uh, which was an incredible experience. Omidyar Network is the family office, venture fund, impact fund of Pierre and Pam Omidyar. Pierre is the founder of eBay. And I was focused on our uh, global financial inclusion investing, spending about half my time in the US and half my time across a bunch of different emerging markets. And most of what I was do, doing looked like very traditional venture investing, but with a very clear focus on things that affected the mass market in a world positive way. But I also was working on ecosystem grants, working with 
government entities or nonprofits and others that were doing some of the really hard sector building work. And so in many ways, the things I love are really this intersection between innovation and entrepreneurship, but also the hard work that it takes to build startup ecosystems in the enabling environment to make them succeed and thrive over time. What's an example of an ecosystem where you've seen it go from not really working to thriving and what made the difference? I think one of the stories that gets a lot of, a lot of play is the story of Mpesa in Kenya. But I think what's missed is how that catalyzed and how a couple of things around that created a startup ecosystem. So Mpesa was um, a technological innovation, not founded by a traditional startup, but actually it had DFID funding. So the British aid agency um, in partnership and incubated within Safaricom, the local telco and created a mobile payments network that today is virtually ubiquitous in Kenya and has been a really strong platform to not, not just offer financial inclusion, two, two billion people around the world have no access to traditional financial products and services, but also on top of that layer on a range of products, savings, lending, things like that, but also powering solar energy products where you can all of a sudden transform a really expensive home solar system into a daily, weekly, monthly system uh, that goes into your home. And so created this platform to enable a lot of other startups. That model of M-Pesa inspired a movement around the world. And I was on um, the steering committee, the, the board of the GSMA mobile money program, which worked within the telco organization, helping telcos do this. And there's now a couple hundred of these telco-led mobile money deployments, as well as a range of startups around the world doing this, uh, some as single startups and others within uh, other platforms. Think of what Gojek and Grab are doing within their uh, ride-sharing platforms, adding mobile wallets and things like that. So that's really an ecosystem of how do you solve this underbanked model through technology, innovation, and business model creation in a really powerful way. And I think it germinated with a couple of these experiments like M-Pesa and has really become a successful global movement. In your book, Out Innovate, you talk about this concept of the frontier. And would you put these ecosystems you were just talking about in that category of frontier ecosystems? Hundred percent, and I, and I will say, um, uh, I think it's tough to, to to divide the world between Silicon Valley and not Silicon Valley. And, and the reality is, the whole world is so heterogeneous. In the book, I took a little bit of a simplification. Where I said, look, there's this range of emerging startup ecosystems around the world. So there's 480 startup ecosystems that are building uh, over a million venture-backed startups, and and a big chunk of the world's biggest companies are getting built there. Um, uh, just one data point, right? 2013, only four startup ecosystems had created a billion dollar business. Last, uh, last year, 85 startup ecosystems had created a billion dollar business. So huge businesses are getting built all over the world. But within that, where they're getting built has a bunch of different varieties. And if you take two dimensions that I think are pretty important, one is a rate of development of the country, developed country versus developing. And the other is how strong and vibrant the local startup ecosystem is. And so if you were going to draw a two by two, you might say Silicon Valley is top right, developed country, very developed startup ecosystem. In the book, I bring us as far as Pyongyang in, in North Korea, right? Very nascent startup ecosystem, if any, and uh, very developing country. Um, and then between those two extremes are places like Bangalore, which have very developed startup ecosystems operating in an emerging uh, developing context. And there's places like my hometown in Canada, Winnipeg, which is a developed country, but has a very nascent startup ecosystem. Um, and what I uh, argue in the book is that those ecosystems have more in common with each other as they do with Silicon Valley, despite the fact that there's a lot of heterogeneity, but that there's an opportunity for these entrepreneurs to learn and compare notes 
on what it takes to scale in these uh, emerging startup ecosystems and how to build uh, successful businesses. And you go into it in a lot of detail in the book, but I'll ask you, like, what are the one or two takeaways that you would want entrepreneurs to know? And maybe that'll whet their appetite to read the book. But what are one or two of these takeaways about what these frontier ecosystems have in common and how you should behave differently? So I'll start by saying, one, what is most exciting is that innovation is rising everywhere. And I described that a little bit with, with the number of startups emerging around the world. I think what's really exciting is it's not just big startups and a lot of startups getting built. It's the world's best startups are getting built around the world. Um, if you think of the world's biggest education technology business, I, I know a topic close to your heart, Miles. It's built in India, right? Baiju. Um, if you think of the world's leading credit-led neobank, that business came from uh, Brazil. It's new bank. Um, if you think of the largest robotic process automation business, um, that came from Romania, UiPath, and the biggest super apps came from China. And so that's what's really exciting is that these new models are uh, emerging from all over the world. Um, the second is the way to build startups looks different in these other ecosystems. And it isn't as easy as just copy pasting uh, the Silicon Valley method to around the world. And so in the book, I talk about how you have to build with sustainability and resilience in mind, why it's okay to build in a global way, where Silicon Valley says you should build locally and how we should rethink uh, how we build teams and hire people and think about them for the long term. So I, I think the, the third idea is really that the rest of innovation is global. The way we think about supporting entrepreneurs um, as well has to change. VCs, uh, government, uh, and all other ecosystem builders and how they build in. So those are three of the topics that um, I would love my readers and folks listening to the podcast to, to come away with. So this idea of being global and it's okay to be global instead of building locally, do you think that idea is changing in Silicon Valley itself? A hundred percent. When I started the book project in 2017, 2018, really conventional wisdom and, and really kind of best practice was Look, start your business in Silicon Valley. Your first customers will be local. If you're a B2C, right, there's a ready community. If you're B2B, a lot of the businesses around there are willing to experiment. There's other tech startups. Build your team locally. You have to be local to, to build a team. And, and that was kind of the model of how you, how you scaled a startup. And today, what we're seeing is the model's changing. And in part, entrepreneurs around the world have already been doing a bunch of these things. They are born global. They're building across multi, multiple markets. Part of this is a philosophical choice. And part of it is just practicality. Local, if you're building a startup in Singapore, the local TAM is often too small. You have to tackle all of uh, Southeast Asia. And if you want to build a team, you know, in some, in some markets, there isn't the same depth of talent, of trained, been there, done that startup talent to be able to do it. And so you hired the best people wherever they were. And so distributed teams were part of the strategy from the get-go. What's happened now is that as innovation is going global, VCs are looking around the world more and more, but also startups from around the world are coming to the Valley, like the story of UiPath. And as we're contending with COVID-19, the whole world has moved to a remote strategy. And, as we, and when we look for best practice on that, it's no surprise, Miles, that some of the most successful companies doing remote from the get-go are companies like Basecamp out of Chicago or Zapier out of Missouri and others like that, because they had to do it uh, all along. And so I think that's how attitudes are changing. It isn't just a, a necessity, but it's also a recognition that these playbooks are actually quite successful and, and, and actually quite resilient as well. I saw this changing even pre-COVID, talking with investors in Silicon Valley, you know, leading seed fund 
told me that their most recent deals, this was pre-COVID, you know, their most recent fund was over half outside of Silicon Valley, whereas previously they had really been uh, very focused on Northern California. So I think there are a lot of reasons why that's changing. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see uh, more of these ecosystems rising. What I hope to avoid personally, my vision of the world is that these ecosystems are learning from each other. And, and I hope to avoid this fragmentation where we have uh, the Chinese ecosystem, the X ecosystem, the Y ecosystem, the, you know, the US ecosystem. Do you, do you think we're in danger of multiple spheres of influence like that? I think that if you read the headlines, it's seemingly unstoppable movements of borders coming up and, and, uh, and this regionalization of tech. But I think that if you strip away a lot of that, those arguments, actually, I think what you see is actually that tech is more global and more cross-pollinating than ever before. I think the best ideas are coming from everywhere and they're getting influenced and improved by, by the ideas coming from elsewhere. Think of ride sharing, for instance. Uh, the model emerged in uh, Silicon Valley with Lyft and then Uber and it's scaled around the world. There's now big startups doing this in every geo, 99 in Latam, Kareem in the Middle East, uh, Grab and Gojek in Southeast Asia. And of course, the biggest ride sharing company in the world is not even in the US, it's in China, it's Didi. And those models are influencing each other. Gojek, for instance, took inspiration of super apps in China. And instead of just offering ride sharing, started offering a plethora of services on that. And it's no surprise that that's influenced the original and Uber now has Uber Eats and a financial product. And a lot of the things that Gojek and others were incorporating in their, in their products. And so that's how innovation is playing out where these ideas are mixing and getting improved and intersecting. And this is across the board, even in our COVID response, right? A lot of the vaccine development came because early sequencing of the genome of the virus in China, collaboration across borders, the strength of immigrants, arguably the, the, the world's strongest cross-pollinators in that way. I, I also think it would be really, really sad if, if that was stripped away, but I think that the momentum is on our side. And I think that the way innovations are proliferating and getting developed is also on our side. And so that's why I believe that um, it won't come to pass, or at least here's to being optimistic. That's great to hear your perspective on that. Part of what you talk about in the book, and we've touched on a little bit here, is that your approach to capital, to fundraising for your startup as an entrepreneur, needs to be different in a frontier ecosystem. You talk about this concept of a camel mm -hmm. instead of a unicorn thinking. And can you explain that a little more? Yeah, happily. So first, what does a unicorn mean? A unicorn in the valley is a business that's worth over a billion dollars. There's a numerical value, but it also comes with this philosophy on how do you build a successful startup. And that philosophy in some ways is underpinned by this notion of growth at all costs, where it's okay to have unsustainable unit economics in service of growth, where it's okay to burn ahead of, of the stage and the size of the business in service of growth, where it's okay to take a short-term approach in service of growth. And that makes sense for a certain set of businesses. And in their book, Blitzscaling, for instance, uh, Reed Hoffman and Chris Yeh talk about winner-takes-all markets that have lots of capital flowing in and, and competitors that are rising. And in that context, um, it could make sense to do, do that approach. And, and in many cases, it does. But I believe that that is only representative of 1% of all venture back startups in, in their context. And, and those startups, by the, by the way, are only you know, 1% of, of, of the rest of kind of startup innovation as well. And for most of the rest of the world, context is different. There's less capital. Timelines take longer. There's 
less enabling infrastructure. So it's harder to build the startup. And in that context, I think this winner takes all uh, approach isn't, isn't correct. It's also just not practical. And so I, I offer this idea of the camel. Why the camel? Camels are animals that can sprint across the desert and drink water faster than almost anything else on the planet. So when times are good, they can thrive. They still want to grow as a startup. They still want to scale, but they are built on a foundation of sustainability and resilience. And they can survive when times are tough and they can manage longer term and more difficult timelines. They're based on a foundation of sustainable unit economics, of managed burn and a long-term outlook. And I think with that, that's the reason that outside the Valley, I believe the camel approach is uh, is the right one. And by the way, you could still be a camel and a unicorn. You can be a successful business with a strong foundation that is worth a billion dollars. And those are the ones that I'm trying to invest in. They're, they're going they're going to grow that way, but they're underpinned by this different philosophy on how to get there. And is that philosophy just a reaction to less access to capital or is there something more? No, I think that, so I think one, there is less capital as a, as a practical reality. And obviously Capital is rising around the world. And yet I, I still see the camel approach being built. I think one of the challenges that we see in when, when we look at a successful startup is we see the outcome, take Uber or whatever you want and you say, wow, they, they got to X valuation. How did they get there? And then you look at the method. But what you don't know is if you replay that story a hundred times in different macroeconomic contexts, in different uh, settings or where it took hard, longer to get to product market fit or what have you, how many of those times you replayed it would you get to the same outcome? And I believe that uh, we're making the mistake of looking back at how companies got there by only looking at the ones that got to that outcome. Because if you replay the story, we're not going to get it on a pro rata basis quite as much to those fantastic outcomes. And with the camel approach, you're building startups that can survive through adversity and resilience. So it isn't just about less capital. It's when we get shocks like COVID-19 or a great recession, or even just the difficulty in getting partners in markets with less used to doing that or, or what have you, those startups can get to the same finish line. I interviewed Mike Evans, the founder of Grubhub. He talked a lot about the fact that every time he raised venture money, it was for a specific purpose, expand to a couple of new cities. It was to make a small acquisition. And that every time he raised funding, it was actually profitable. They, they had the option to do it or not. And I asked him, well, why didn't you just raise more money and, and scale a little bit faster? He said, look, I could have uh, exited in eight years. It took them about 10, but I would have done so at tremendously more risk. And that's really what I'm talking about is getting to these successful outcomes, but doing it with a managed risk such that if you play it back more often, you will get to the same outcome. So you've been polite here and in your book, you point out blitzscaling is a different approach than the one you're focused on. But are you actually anti-blitzscaling? I want to understand. You know, in the book, you're kind of forced to put a um, flag in the ground and say, this is what I believe. But the reality with a lot of these things, that things are nuanced, right? And Chris Ye actually uh, read the book and, and endorsed it. And, and, and I think in the same way, there are times where an approach like blitzscaling could make sense. And they say it themselves in the book, right? It's winner takes all market, highly funded competitors moving very quickly. And in that context, it could make sense to raise a ton of cap capital and win that market. I think the problem is that approach has been extended far too widely to a bunch of startups that are not winner takes all. There's very, very few that are truly winner takes all markets. And when there's unsustainable unit economics, and I think we're building um, ideas, but not businesses. And I think it's for this big chunk of the market where I think the, the blitzscaling approach just doesn't work and has been overextended beyond the intention of the book 
originally. So that, so that's kind of a more nuanced perspective. And I think that for the vast, vast, vast majority of startups, the camel approach is the right one over the long term. Thanks for that. I want to get back to the team part of the equation. You were talking about a little bit, the remote and distributed nature of teams. How else in a frontier market do you have to think differently about building your team? And by the way, I think that a lot of the themes that we're talking about in the book, if I was going to take a step back, it's facing adversity, building a strategy to get there, and then that strategy offering and conferring an advantage. And so the camel approach, for instance, you're forced to build sustainability and resilience in the business model as a reflection of the ecosystem in which you operate, but it yields a business that can more often scale and succeed over the long term. I think the team approach is another good example of that. Uh, where, you know, we talked about distributed, for instance, where you're forced to do things that look a little bit different than conventional wisdom. But in times like COVID, if you have teams all over, you end up having a more resilient business uh, to be able to react to it. Some of the other strategies that entrepreneurs are taking are around how they are discovering talent, how they are selecting and building the pipeline, and how they're thinking about retraining. I will say that these are some of the more nascent approaches, and I think we're going to see more and more evolution here. One startup that I admired, for instance, in Nigeria, Hotels.ng, built a virtual internship for selection. They felt that they were tapping out the local talent pool in Lagos, and they wanted to find different types of entrepreneurs um, across the country. And so they set up a, you know, essentially a weekly internship where it was a digital digital project around, you know, this for engineers, so coding project. And they started with over a thousand of these engineers. And over the coming weeks, anyone that answered the question right, they got the next one and the next one um, until they got to a class of 10 or 15. Most of those folks, by the way, were outside of Lagos, outside of traditional schools and with a greater diversity. And so they're able to find new pipeline that otherwise wouldn't have gotten a chance. Shopify, which today is obviously a over $100 billion startup, but, but in their growth story, took a similar approach around how they built their pipeline. Actually, for instance, one, one story, one of the initiatives they did, which I thought was really ingenious, is they partnered with the university to create a engineering degree in partnership with Shopify. They paid the students tuitions, but got them to take courses that also got them ready for a career at Shopify. Internships were there. And then when they graduated, they had candidates that were ready to plug into the system. So they were thinking about the way they built their pipeline differently. And then there's some ex- really interesting experiments around retention beyond just stock options and things around hybrid RSUs, be able to give it to everyone, or even thinking about a long-term career path for folks to really give them a vision of where they're going to evolve. In Silicon Valley, it's okay to have a 13, 15-month tenure average like at Google and Uber and others, because there's a seemingly bottomless pit of awesome, very qualified talent. But when you're operating in tougher ecosystems, turnover as part of the business model just doesn't make sense. You have to think critically around this. And I think by the time I write the sequel, we'll see some very exciting examples of doing this totally differently at scale. Yeah, I think so. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Tell us about how mission orientation uh, comes up in these kinds of markets as well. I think that's such an interesting question and, and one that's close to uh, both of our hearts and work. Um, 
when you look at the data and you say, well, before you even talk about how startups are built and you ask the question, what startups are built, the problems that global entrepreneurs are looking to tackle look different and I believe are more important. In Silicon Valley, less than 20% of startups are doing things like financial services, healthcare, environment, agriculture, what have you. In many emerging startup ecosystems, the numbers are flipped. In Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, it's over 60%. And so what you, sh- what you see is a shift in the product problem selection, but also in how they build their business model. In the book, I call this building uh, MMAs, uh, but instead of mixed martial arts, it's multi-mission athletes. But the idea is the same as using different techniques to get to the same successful outcome. And the best entrepreneurs around the world in some of those business models are building a strategy and operational model that mixes operational success and impact where the success in one leads to the success of the other. And so you could do this in, in B2C. There's this pretty, pretty, pretty clear ways to do that. I, I alluded to uh, when we were talking about MCOPA about some of this electrification, a company like Zola, for instance, or MCOPA, another business in Kenya, they sell home solar systems, it's finance. So for the same cost of daily, weekly, monthly, that you might pay for kerosene, literally jet fuel to burn a little candle, you can have a modern home system. And so for every system you sell, every family you electrify, that's linked with very, very strong, direct, clear socioeconomic outcomes um, around better school outcomes because kids have lights, uh, light to study at night, better health outcomes because of the fumes or the risk of a home burning down, et cetera. So it's very, very easy on the consumer place, but we're seeing it also happen in the B2B place. I love the example of Revigo, a billion dollar business in India in the logistics space. India has one of the most inefficient logistics um, ecosystems in the world. And one of the reasons is that there's high driver turnover. Drivers are driving long distances one direction with a load, but then coming back totally empty. And so Revigo has built their business model around driver health. Their um, tagline is making logistics human. Uh, logistics human. And the way they work is a driver picks up a load and drives maximum 24 hours in one direction, uh, gives the load to another driver who does the same thing, and then uh, we'll take a load home the other direction. And in that daisy chain, they drive better utilization, but they also make sure the driver is at home more often, has a better life, and thus have lower turnover and thus have a more efficient system. And so they built um, driver health into the operations, into the metrics that get reported to the board, which are directly correlated with the outcomes of the business. And if you think about it, this is a pretty different way to think about impact, right? In in a lot of businesses, people give impact on the back end. They have the business model and then they might have a CSR initiative or a buy one, give one or what happened. But when times are tough, that's the first thing to go because it's a cost center. Here in this uh, MMA approach, it's core to the business is required. And when times are tough, it stays. And when times are good, it scales. And and I think that's what's powerful about that model. Do you think that these multi-mission athletes are thinking about impact the way we might talk about in the U.S.? Or are they essentially, because they're working in developing economies, required to focus on needs that are lower on Maslow's hierarchy? And so with the U.S. lens, we think, oh, that's impact. And is it? Uh, What's the difference? I'd be curious to your thoughts. I think the word impact means a lot of things to a lot of people. And, you know, even, you know, even in the impact investing spectrum, I, you know, I was working at Omidyar Network, what that meant for us there was very different to players across the range. There's uh, foundations like the Gates Foundation that does uh, PRIs to the for-profit world. And then there's things like Generation Investment Management, which is a hedge fund that invests around uh, companies that have ESG and there's everything in the middle. And so I'll start by saying the, world, the word impact itself 
has a very broad spectrum of what it means to a lot of different pla- people in a lot of different places. But actually everything I'm talking about in the book around this MMA question, I think works equally well in a startup in Silicon Valley as it does in a more emerging market context. I think you make a very good point, right? That naturally, if you're solving uh, more basic needs lower down in the pyramid, it's easier to do it, but you can do it in the Valley too. So I'll, I'll mention three investments that, that, that I've made. I, I think of myself as a closet impact investor and in my work at, at, at Cathay, but Chime Bank, for instance, which is a digital bank for the, for the mass market in the US, no fees, no overdraft fees, really a driver of financial inclusion and a driver to access to other fabulous products. They work when, and they succeed when their customers succeed. They only make money when customers use their card. They don't make money with monthly fees or anything like that. So they're incentivized to make an awesome product that's pro-consumer. Sidecar Health, an investment in the health insurance company that's remaking how we think about it around cash-based insurance, trying to lower the price of it um, by up to 40% from other plans, um, but by doing it by providing transparency on price for consumers. They win when consumers win. Because, uh, because of retention and utilization and proactive care. Zen business, a business around helping entrepreneurs uh, having a single platform, a single view in their business. And they do LLC formation, but they help you make first dollar so to, to earn, but then to grow. They help you with building a website, things like that. They work when people, when their businesses work and they scale with their businesses. I think it's possible to do those kind of things anywhere with that approach of building a business model that is inextricably tied with social impact and the consumers who try to help. And by the way, um, I believe the biggest markets in the world are the ones where you are tackling an intractable problem with a new technology, a new business model. And that's where not only can have a lot of impact, but you can build a fabulous world-changing company. Well, that's certainly exciting. You mentioned this concept also that you're a closet impact investor, and I don't want to out you here to all your coworkers, but how does that <laughs> dynamic play out when you're talking about a deal if you don't have an explicit impact mandate at your investment firm? I believe that some of these businesses in this impact world are building not just fabulous business models, but something that has impact aligned with it. And as they scale, they will scale their impact as well. And so the three examples I gave you a second ago, I think are business models that you know, mainstream investors have invested alongside us in all three of these. We just announced today on the day of this recording, a, uh, a massive funding round for, for Sidecar with Tiger Global and Menlo and Drive and others. So mainstream investors, I think about this, it happens to be a massive market, incredibly underserved with a business model that works. I think that when you find that intersection, there's something beautiful that happens. And so that's one of the reasons that I think impact is a word that has a pretty broad range of what it means. And I'm investing in part of that spectrum where there's tech-enabled businesses that have the potential as they scale and with business models that can scale um, to also have a ton of positive world-changing impact. Do you have any tips for founders as they're thinking about raising from someone who may be not explicitly an impact investor, but the founder does care about the mission of the, of the company? It's such an interesting question. I actually think that mission alignment is really important. Even if the fund and the person you're taking money from uh, is not an explicitly focused person on impact, I think it's still really, really important for there to be mission alignment over the long term. The average venture relationship, I tell my students, is longer than the average American marriage. And so if you don't have that trust, that mission alignment, I think it's really tough. And so I would spend as an entrepreneur a lot of time building that relationship and understanding what makes that investor tick. They don't need to be passionate about your particular problem. They don't need to be over the, but I, I think it's important to really understand 
whether or not they're going to be aligned over the long term on the vision of what you're trying to solve. And so that would be the heuristic I would try to think about as, as you approach a venture capitalist for money, regardless of who that person is. Thank you for that. By the way, I'd be curious, Miles, how you think yeah. about it, right? Because you're also at the, at the intersection right there with me. Um, does that resonate for you? I think so. Something I've written about on venture patterns that working with a VC to align on values is a really important strategy, uh, both for the founder and for the investor. I do think that if a, a truly mission-oriented business is looking to raise capital, it is good to have investors who understand that and are aligned with it, at least not actively against it. I certainly think you can have a very successful businesses, as you alluded to, that have investor bases that have mixed motivations. They don't have to all agree on the on the one thing, but you, you certainly want to be careful who you work with. To your point, it's a long-term relationship, someone who's going to have influence and power in the organization and someone you're going to have to spend a lot of time with. So uh, knowing, knowing who you're doing that important deal with as they become an investor in your company is certainly important. And by the way, you're building on what, what, what you said, I, I think that it's okay to change how you message the company. To un, if you understand how the person reacts, I'm not saying tell two different stories, but if you're, you know, if you're talking, if your business has a consumer angle and a B2B angle or what have you, tailoring your story to what the, what the VC that you're speaking to knows about, you know, they might be a industry expert and part of your business model, what have you, or tailoring the story around the business model. But I think that you can also tailor the story around the impact model, depending on who the audience is. And so I think it's also figuring out who you're talking to and what are the things that make them tick as part of the conversation, but just making sure that they have a very strong alignment on the whole as well. Um, I think that's pretty crucial as part of it. Yes. And this is an interesting topic. I sometimes get the question from founders, whether they should have two versions of their deck, for example, their fundraising materials. And maybe this is, you know, coming from the fact that my father was a lawyer, or maybe it's coming from the fact that I was a public company executive who probably spent too much time worrying about the SEC. But the idea of having different fundraising materials for different audiences makes my hair stand up. This is not legal advice, but that's something I wouldn't feel comfortable with. No, and I, I don't think that's what, and I don't think that's- No, no, I'm I don't think that's what you were saying. I, I think giving the same written materials, but spending more time or emphasizing different parts, depending on what the audience is interested in talking about, is just a natural and uh, very useful way of connecting with your audience. So I totally agree with you. Yeah, exactly. I, I, was, I was arguing uh, that versus, versus the other, other version, 100%. Yeah, but I do get this question and people sometimes do wonder, you know, do, do I have two versions of my deck, the impact version and the, you know, mercenary version or something. And I, I discourage that personally. Do you have any tips for people who want to become investors? I feel very fortunate to be a VC. It's my favorite job in the world. And you get, uh, I feel like I have the incredible opportunity of working uh, with and serving uh, some incredible entrepreneurs. There's a bunch of roads into VC and VC isn't kind of a career path in the very traditional way of, you know, do this, then get to that. But there's a bunch of different ways that people have gotten into. One is, you know, having worked and had startup experience, and, and this doesn't necessarily mean being a founder, but just being part of the story and understanding that there's a lot of paths into it. There's a lot of paths that come from having some amount of functional expertise. So in fintech, which is one of the areas I spent some time in or healthcare, having an experience that's deep and functional around that can help you get into more specialized VC role or something like that. 
And there's also kind of the, uh, a more finance road as well, where you might have some previous finance experience either in corp dev or what have, or investment banking or something like that. And, and that transitioning into it. I think that there's a bunch of these different, different things. VC is a little bit like entrepreneurship in, in early entrepreneurship and joining a team. It's, they tend to be small firms. They tend to be relationship driven. It's a long-term hiring cycle. Uh, you know, people are not just hiring all the time. Uh, when I got into venture, I didn't know a single venture capitalist. Uh, I actually had only been to San Francisco once for a weekend. So the whole world was pretty foreign. But uh, I was pretty focused on financial inclusion. That was really what I wa- a problem I wanted to tackle. And I made a list of the most in- interesting companies I'd been admiring and then looked at who were their investors and begged, borrowed, and steal to be able to have 15 minutes with a bunch of these folks and try to keep the relationship going. And over time, some of those conversations became half an hour, one hour conversations. And, and uh, at one point, one of the folks I got to know at, at Omidyar Network, a guy called uh, Arjun Acosta, started looking for someone to join. And, and, and I joined him to be employee number one on his uh, emerging financial inclusion fintech fund within Omidyar Network. And so that was how I, I got into it. But I, I think a lot of this is, is building that relationship. These are small teams and, and finding folks that you really resonate with that are investing in the same kind of things that you care a lot about. Yeah, I'd love to get into a little more detail if you're willing to share about how did you get those first introductions and meetings? What, what was the stated purpose? For me, to be honest, a lot of it was just informational. It was, hey, I've, I've seen X, Y, and Z company. This is some of the work that I was doing. I'd love to just spend 15 minutes on your, uh, on your calendar. I think that a great time, I often tell my students, use the fact that you're in school as a reason to connect with folks and particular alumni who are very happy to chat and, and doing it in a low, low impact way and then trying to show value in some, in some way to them. I think that if you're a candidate looking to be in venture and you have a view on the sector or stage, I think it's important for you to have a very strong perspective on the kind of things you find interesting. And when you talk to a VC, being able to tell them, hey, have you heard of this company or this company or, or what have you, and, and show, show that you're really being thoughtful about it and putting into action your desire to have this career. And so that, that was a little bit of how I was doing it. I, I had the opportunity, some folks I was able to meet through alumni, um, but a lot of it was just very, very slow going where I would talk to friends that were at you know, X company and they would introduce me to someone. And it, was, it started only being kind of N plus three type folks. Arjuna was the way that, that had happened. That one was, it was an introduction by a friend to a friend of them who then, then, then introduced me. And so it, it was a little bit of a convoluted accident. And, and I think that's how a lot of this is. And so it's, it's about taking a long-term view. It took me uh, well over a year to do that, but it was actually because I really cared about the topics and it was something I really wanted to do. I actually found it to be a really fun exercise. And by the way, all those relationships I've made at the time actually helped me later on um, in terms of just ha- having a ready network in the space once I, once I was in venture um, to be able to talk about companies and, and sectors and things like that and, and, uh, and, and actually add, uh, um, add a little bit more of an expanded network to, to the firm I was working at. Well, thank you for sharing a little more detail there. Do you have a book, article, or website you would recommend to aspiring founders or VCs? Do you mean a... a, Aside from your own. (laughs) Oh, aside Aside from from my own. Um, So a couple of things that I think are great required reading around innovation on just kind of how Silicon Valley emerged and things like that. I've really liked uh, some of the work around something ventured. Uh, Around the technical around venture, I think Brad Phelps done some great work uh, around uh, around his uh, foundational books and around things around uh, the global 
innovation landscape. Of course, besides Out Innovate, uh, which I'm biased towards, uh, I think some of the uh, writing of uh, Chris Schroeder, and he wrote a great book about the Middle East called Startup Rising. Bill Draper, who I think was one of the very early global uh, venture capitalists, which, you know, he obviously did a lot of work at Sutter Hill, launched a VC fund in India, was uh, head of the UNDP. He wrote a great book called The Startup Game that talks about his career, but also the rise of, uh, of this innovation movement. So those are some of the things that I've, I've really enjoyed and resonated with and have inspired me in my own work. And then I think the work at Endeavor, the global entrepreneurial ecosystem building organization, I think is very powerful and, and gives you a, a pretty strong, ready sense of what's happening around the world as a startup genome. Great. And for closing, where, where can people follow you online? Happily. So you can follow me at alexlazaro.com, A-L-E-X-L-A-Z-A-R-O-W.com and sign up for my newsletter. If you're interested in the book, Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. It's available anywhere where books are sold, of course, on Amazon. But given COVID and everything happening, I'd really encourage you to consider buying it from your local bookstore as well. And you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, just searching my name, Alex Lazaro. Um, Miles, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed this. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.